Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this week's version of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Working Behind the Scenes. Coming up on today's show, we're rejoined by Shosh Annan of Sodi. Sodi is a firm that has their hands in a number of different categories, but specifically Shosh is the VP of Product Strategy at Sodi, and he'll be joining us to discuss their recent 2021 State of Transportation and Logistics report. Of course, of main concern to retailers because supply chain, as we'll talk about in the first segment of the show, something that's on everybody's mind. We'll also talk about some rather stunning downtime numbers discussed in the report as well. In news, we'll talk about Costco's latest earnings call, their sales numbers, but more importantly, how they're reacting to macro trends like supply chain issues, like inflation. We'll also look ahead to a convenience store retailer on the up and up that is potentially going public soon. A reminder that you can, if you enjoy the podcast, like us or rate us. However you access us, those ratings, those likes, they help others to check us out. So whether that be on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google's podcast platform, on Amazon's podcast platform, any of those listening devices, those ratings certainly do help. You can also check us out on social media at Retail Podcast. So let's lead off with Costco's earnings call coming Thursday of this past week. The earnings call came with the backdrop of steadily increasing monthly sales. Costco is, of course, somewhat notorious in the retail news community for providing monthly sales updates. So nothing sales-wise is going to come out of left field on any of their earnings calls. As a result of these monthly sales updates, we know that their sales would be up for the quarter coming into this call, but it was encouraging to see just how they put everything together for what was their fourth quarter ending August 29th. And in addition to Costco's monthly updates as a backdrop, Sam's Club sales were very impressive during Walmart's latest earnings call. And during Kroger's most recent update, we know Rodney McMullen spoke to how customers are seeking larger quantity packaging, either as a result of more expendable income or as a carryover from some of that stockpiling behavior we saw in 2020. All of this should have led to a great quarter for Costco, and it indeed did. Speaking specifically to the bottom line as we get to the numbers, they beat on bottom line expectations by about 10%. Zach's consensus estimates pegged them at earnings of $3.55 per share. They delivered on an adjusted basis $3.90 per share instead. Now, this was somewhat a consequence of lapping some COVID-specific costs from 2020 in terms of the increase per share that they saw versus last year where earnings were around $3.20 a share. Partially also a consequence of a benefit of continued leveraging of increased sales, which has been kind of the story at Costco over the last five years. Their overall net sales saw an increase of 17.5%, kind of in line with the increase they'd seen during earlier quarters to this point in their fiscal year. They finished with a full year net sales increase for their fiscal year, which again just concluded August 29th of 17.7%. Now, largely this was a function of increase in comps, also had a little bit to do with new store openings, currency effects, and such. But as far as their comps are concerned, they increased 14.9% in the U.S., 
when you look at an adjusted number, however, and really the number we want to look at, which is excluding the gasoline prices in the U.S. and excluding those impacts, their number, as far as comps are concerned for the quarter, came in at 10.3%. And that's still a very good jump over what was for them a solid fourth quarter last year, to be sure. And we can see just how much they benefited from the increase in gas prices on the revenue front, nearly 5% of a comp benefit there. Now, granted, it did increase their logistics costs when it comes to their bottom line, but still, those increase in gas prices certainly helping out certain retailers' top line as it pertains to retailers that do have a large presence in that fuel category. As with so many other retailers, though, Costco's e-commerce growth did tail off in the quarter as a result of lapping some of those summer 2020 numbers. Adjusted for foreign currency effects, their e-commerce sales company-wide still increased, but by just 8.9%. And honestly, this could be the one number that raises eyebrows. Along with many others, we felt, Leighton and I did at least, that their e-commerce potential hadn't quite been reached yet when the pandemic began. They had been criticized for several years for kind of not kicking their e-commerce website into gear, much less their mobile site and their app-based commerce. And although they've spent the last few years getting things in order, and their app in particular was something that was discussed a lot on this call, it still appears that that secondary jump from Costco's e-com sales that some were expecting, that just hasn't been realized yet. And like we said, we figured growth would tail back just a little bit, but they still have a lot of white space there. You would think in e-commerce for things to have just grown by about 9% in that last quarter. The two-year stack for them, by the way, is about 100%, which is similar to other retailers who had a mature e-commerce presence. You think of the likes of Walmart as one example. And so I think it's reasonable to potentially have expected higher numbers from Costco, given the circumstances here. Now, aside from their sales numbers, we're always keen to look at membership numbers for clubs. And as per usual for Costco, they did see an incremental increase in terms of total cardholders from 109.8 million company-wide to 111.6 million. And they don't parse out U.S. versus non-U.S. cardholders on these calls. So it's important to discount currency effects, certainly when it comes to membership income, bringing that money in. When you take out those currency effects, you see a $107 million increase year over year in membership income. This largely comes from three factors that they outline. First, those new members that we just talked about, about 2 million of them, driven both by increased traffic to existing clubs and the effect of introducing new clubs to certain markets. Of course, anytime they open a club in either a new market or in a different location, in an existing market, you see those membership numbers spike a little bit and help to pay back what has for them been an increasing store opening cost. Second for them, they're seeing an increase in members at the executive level. It's up to 25.6 million across their chain now, or if you want to put it another way, about 1 million new executive members in the quarter alone. Of course, they're providing more income but also they renew at higher rates. And speaking of those renewal rates, that's the third contributor to this income growth and overall membership growth. Renewal rates up to 91.3% in the U.S. and Canada. 
This is a slight increase, once again, year over year. We expect them typically to be in the upper 80s to low 90% range. This number for them this past quarter was driven by an increase in executive memberships because executive members renew at higher rates than typical members do. Also by an increase in those doing auto renewals, those signing up for an auto renewal service. The more of those that you have, of course, the more of those renewals automatically carry over because people don't even have to think about it. They don't sit down and evaluate whether that Costco membership makes sense for their household for the coming year. Now, as we mentioned on the outset of the podcast, one of the things that we wanted to look to this call to find out is some of these macro effects and what Costco is seeing. And one thing that's been brought up time and again for grocers and general merchandisers over the last six months is how inflation is affecting things. And like Kroger has done in certain areas, Costco is also making some price investments in certain inflationary categories, which they've elected to either delay price increases or attenuate them somewhat, maybe not 100%, pass them along to the consumer. As a result of this, they saw margins on food and sundries, that category for them, down year over year. Particularly, this was driven by fresh foods, partially as a result of those price investments regarding inflation, but also partially as a result of lapping low product spoilage from last year. And you think back to last week's podcast, this is kind of what we guessed caused higher shrink at Kroger before Kroger noted that their higher shrink this past quarter was realistically caused by organized crime. It was really the driving factor there. But Costco's CFO Richard Galanti noted on the call itself that labor productivity and low spoilage last year, again caused by those pandemic-driven sales, That was a main driver of margins in fresh food last year increasing, and as a result, it was a driver of margins in fresh food declining because they're now seeing higher spoilage rates. Now, fresh products have seen remarkable price increases too, so we shouldn't downplay that. Costco says these mostly have to do with labor and transportation, but they gave an example. For them, sourcing meat, that's up high single to low double digits as an example. So you're not quite seeing hyperinflation certainly here, but numbers are taking a jump simply because of that labor and transportation cost. Also with meat, they talked about the cost of grain feed going up too. Aside from their fresh categories, other categories that they're talking about seeing inflationary pressure in, you look at paper products, they've seen at 4 to 8% price increases. Not out of the ordinary considering other lumber and pulp related products having increased so much over the course of the last year also increased oil costs you know we talked about how gasoline prices affecting their top line positively but it's also resulted in an increase in cost of plastics products as well galanti on the call mentioned specifically things like ziploc bags and plastic cups being up in the 5 to 11 percent range in terms of price increases year over year Metals have also seen slight increases, so that affects cans, basically anything that comes along in a can, aluminum foil, and so forth. And they've seen this price increase effect really come into play over the last couple of months. It's been a rather quick rise. You know, other retailers, Albertsons and Vivek Shankaran, for example, have noted this. But at the beginning of the year, inflation for them was about 1% to 1.5%. Three months ago, 
it was about two and a half to three and a half percent. Now their senior merchants at Costco indicate price inflation for their overall product offerings to be up three and a half to four and a half percent. So we've really seen an escalation here in inflation, at least as far as Costco is concerned, at least as far as their sourcing is concerned over the past nine months. Now, granted, in other categories, Costco was able to mitigate somewhat the fact that they're seeing margin pressure in food categories and sundry categories by increasing margin year over year in food court and optical. Of course, these two categories saw poor margins from forced closures, which as a result deleveraged sales last year. Other strong departments year over year for Costco included jewelry. They actually on the call noted two individual ring sales over $100,000 in the quarter. Home furnishings also doing well. Sporting goods, pharmacy, all named as categories significantly up year over year. All of this information dovetails nicely with what we've learned from other retailers recently. If you've listened to the podcast at all in the last three to four months, we've talked about all of those categories and how well they're doing. Remember, Signet Jewelers had a great earnings call recently. Obviously, Sporting Goods is doing well across the board. Home furnishings we've talked about time and again. And pharmacy, you know, that was one of the categories that Walmart mentioned as being a particular driver for them, even beside the COVID-19 vaccinations that are taking place in their pharmacies. Now, what Costco calls majors or basically large dollar product sales and electronics for them, they had solid sales compared to pre-pandemic, but they weren't quite able to measure up to 2020 sales if you're looking at categories that maybe took just a slight half step back. So we've discussed inflation. We've talked about category by category sales at this point. What about that other hot-button topic for retailers, supply chain? Well, on the call, Costco, as other retailers have, noted the constant need to work months ahead, whether for CPG products or for raw materials used in their fresh categories, so things like ingredients that they're bringing in. But these lead time requirements, at least as far as Costco is concerned, have caused them to retain or add to their per-purchase limitations on some categories for customers. So this includes paper products, this includes water, things that we were seeing last summer, really, but also cleaning-related items, which Costco said demand for those items has really seen an uptick amidst the Delta variant and the proliferation of the Delta variant throughout the country. Now, Costco did mention that supply chain issues with furniture and electronics means that their turnover is greater. Rarely do they have these products in for more than two weeks at a time, so it's helping to kind of fortify demand, increase that product turnover, decrease inventory as a result, but all of it has caused earlier ordering of higher quantities across these categories as well as toys, which is something that they had been hitting very hard during the summer just to ensure that they had the demand needed for the holiday season. In some circumstances, they mentioned 18 or over 18 week lead times on products. So a lot of this ordering taking place several weeks ago in an effort to make sure their toys are properly stocked for the coming months. And one of the interesting things, and I think one of the things that we hadn't really heard other retailers discuss to this point, is that they're ordering items off season. So you talk about grills, you talk about outdoor items, you talk about summer items. 
they're starting to order those now just to get ahead of flow, which is a lot earlier than typically what retailers have ordered some of these products in years past. And of course, supply chain has added to inflationary pressures with Costco. Overseas shipping costs, in some cases, increasing 6x over where they were a year ago or two years ago. So a couple of different subjects that Costco discussed, and I think some worrisome signs in regards to inflation and in regards to supply chain. Now, Costco has said throughout the course of the pandemic and did say in this most recent quarter's earnings call that supply chain pressures are causing issues for buyers, are causing issues on the back end. But as far as customers are concerned, Costco feels pretty good as far as how they've been able to manage those effects and keep things in stock generally. And overall, pretty proud as a company of their ability to make sure that they're able to get products on the shelves and trying to keep those purchase maximums, if you will, to a minimum. So coming up after this break, we'll be joined once again by Shosh Annan, the VP of Product Strategy at Sodi. You know, Sodi, as we talked about, recently released their 2021 State of Transportation and Logistics report. And he's going to talk through a multitude of different findings as far as the report is concerned and provide a little bit of color to some of the supply chain issues that we've talked about retailers experiencing to this point. Two words on every retail executive's lips these days are supply and chain. And of course, the key worries surrounding supply chain for North American retail companies have to do with transportation and logistics, more importantly, backlogs in each and issues surrounding staffing and reverse logistics, otherwise known as returns. So it's important to look at the data surrounding this sector. And to do so, we're pleased to be joined by Shosh Annan, the VP of Product Strategy at SOTI. We've had him on the show before, but SOTI recently released their 2021 State of TNL report, which can actually be found in full on their website, SOTI.net. Shosh, welcome back to the show. Hey, Dran. Thanks for having me. Now, first, as a refresher for those who haven't heard your past appearances on the show, I was wondering if you could give us a brief background again on what SOTI does on the day-to-day. Sure. SOTI offers a suite of integrated technologies that are all geared towards helping you manage your mobile ecosystem. So mobile meaning mobile devices as well as IoT devices. And we have software to help you create policies and rules to deploy applications and content to all of your different mobile devices that you're using. And we also have tools to help you troubleshoot these devices, as well as help you build mobile apps so that you can quickly and automate your operations. And we should mention also that your services touch many different areas of retail, but today we're going to be focused specifically, of course, on transportation and logistics. And regarding the report findings, I was wondering if you could give us maybe a 30,000-foot view of the general takeaways from the report. Now, I've looked it over. There's a lot to unpack, but yeah. Who did you interview for the data and what were some of the general themes that you uncovered there? So the data is, is from Arlington Research. We worked with Arlington Research to interview consumers across several different countries. I think it was eight different countries around the world. We wanted to kind of find out at a very high level, what is the state of mobility when it comes to transportation and logistics? We really wanted to understand from companies 
whether they are deploying technology, how that technology is being used, what has changed since the last year that we've done these reports. And we found some really interesting trends that I wanted to talk to you about. So our 2021 TNL report, one of the things that it found was that despite many companies in transportation logistics making huge investments, both in 2020 and 2021, the increase in e-commerce sales, which was around 27.6% in last year, it caused a tremendous strain on these companies. And it was affecting their operations. And most importantly, it was their employee productivity. And what we also found was that there was a clear lack of technical integration, which was actually limiting productivity. It was creating siloed workflows and it was causing TNL companies to kind of lose valuable time when they were out in the field. And we know that mobile technology has always been a major factor, especially for TNL companies. It's caused major shifts in operations around the world as kind of these technologies continue to innovate. But these operational changes really have had a dramatic impact on both consumer experiences and how TNL organizations are managing their operations. Now, one of the things that was very interesting is, as we know, the world's connected 24-7. That's kind of a no-brainer now. But the expectation is that TNL organizations are also meeting customer demands in real time. So this means for TNL companies, it means more mobile devices. They're using more applications. There's an increase in the management complexity. There's an increase in the worry about security. There's an increase in the need for remote support, more application and content distribution. There's also, of course, the worry about privacy. And you also need some type of way to kind of have analytics around your mobile devices. The TNL report actually ties in Trent with our 2021 retail report really nicely because it ties in because shoppers want the products, not only the product that they're looking for, but at the best possible price. And now it's become very, very clear that it's as soon as they can get it. And shoppers have become interested in a faster, more efficient shopping experience. So this kind of relates back to our both reports, but providing better online and offline shopping experiences for consumers with the need for innovative technology has really become more of an expectation from consumers in the end. And, you know, as I was looking through the report, I think one of the more interesting takeaways, at least for me personally, is the fact that TNL companies are seeing these pressures, as you mentioned, because of these piecemeal technology approaches. It seems like a lot of companies have just taken kind of a potato head approach and just, you know, kept adding things and adding new technologies to existing ones. Right. It's caused kind of a fractured back end. The systems don't seem to talk to each other, which causes downtime, which causes delays, which of course upsets consumers. So I was curious, what are companies finding as far as upgrading technologies or maybe synchronizing those technologies to ensure that one system runs most, if not all of their services? That's a great question. So what I think is happening now is as companies are trying to adopt these new types of technologies, there's now further checks and balances in place on what am I buying and how easily is it manageable? How easy is it to upgrade? How easy is it to secure? And it's kind of becoming a norm that these things are going to have to happen on a regular basis now. No longer is it just buy and you kind of keep it in your store for five to 10 years. These technologies all need to be updated and upgraded regularly. So that's one kind of trend that we're seeing is that people are actually 
becoming more understanding of the need for upgrading and upgrading at mass. And the fact that these consumers are constantly changing what they're looking for, what's important to them, these are things that are causing the technologies to have to also change as well. And so you need the tools that allow you to kind of change this technology very quickly. Just to be a bit more specific, there's paper and pen processes that are still being used today, and this is delaying employees, and it leads to human mistakes. So that alone is trying to take a paper and pen process, then enter the data in, and, and then try to use that system, or there's copy and pasting from one system to another. This is causing huge slowdowns. 80% of TNL companies are actually looking to make significant investments in new technology within the next 18 months. And their whole focus is to create a faster and more efficient last mile delivery process. Furthermore, I think more than 50% of the consumers in one of our retail reports said that they will not click buy for three major reasons. One, they're thinking about returns. If returns aren't easy, they're not going to click. They're thinking about shipping and delivery. Is it trackable on the place that I'm buying? If it's not trackable right from the beginning to the end, I may not click on buy there. And then data security, of course, is always a big priority. 61% of consumers have actually said that they would buy more from a store if they made returns an easy process. So how does this factor into TNL? Well, that return process, it's, it's where the TNL companies need to work very closely with the retail companies to explore ways to handle returns. And in our TNL report, we found that 78% of these TNL companies are in fact exploring ways to overcome purchase barriers. They're working with their retailers to improve the returns process. And 71% agreed that providing consumer subscription models for goods is actually going to help them alleviate the operational pressures and help them in planning kind of, you know, things like vehicle usage, staffing ahead of time. So a lot of these retailers and TNL companies are working together to say, hey, if we can get you to purchase these products on a regular basis, that can help us understand the pressures and the times and, hey, you know, we'll know this is coming every three months. So that's kind of one area that we found in the report was really interesting. Well, while we're on the subject of returns or reverse logistics, I know it's a major concern for TNL companies that came up in the report. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, a lot of these companies have started working with retailers. And I think a word that was mentioned a few times in the report was transparency in terms of providing that end user transparency as to that returns process. What are some ways in which companies on the TNL side are working with retailers or are working in some cases directly with consumers to provide that transparency up front so that the customer does click that buy button? There's a lot that TNL companies are doing. So there's certain technologies that allow them to give transparency into where the package is at any point in time. For example, one would be RFID technology. So now it's not just about me kind of scanning that box when it first leaves, but throughout the entire process, I can leverage RFID technology to track by leveraging RFID readers, say, for example, in the trucks, in the warehouse, in the stores. So as soon as that box is kind of moving and is going throughout the entire flow, I can send that information back to a central system, which can integrate via you know, APIs to a variety of different systems. And it also is something where I get visibility on a mobile device. So if I build a quick mobile app, I can access the backend system and I can constantly get visibility. And that same visibility that I'm getting 
on that mobile device by that driver or by the backend central office can easily be shared through tracking software with end users as well. So there is this kind of big integration aspect that needs to be done. And that's kind of what a lot of them are working on now. Now, another thing you mentioned is subscription models. And a lot of TNL companies seem to be pushing retailers, or at least would like retailers, to adopt more of a subscription model when and where possible. Aside from the obvious external reasons, why would a subscription model be beneficial to alleviating that TNL system pressure? What it does is it kind of sets the expectations. Right now, we see that there's this huge surge in online shopping. Maybe it's because of certain holiday shopping, right? So the holiday shopping season is quickly approaching. And what happens is you get this surge in online shopping. And what that does is it creates a massive demand on faster delivery. And this causes a lot of retailers to kind of have to do major inventory checks. They have to try to figure out how to automate certain orders. They have to handle high demand stock. They have to handle tracking orders in an instant manner. And what's happening now is if we can start getting into this regular flow of, hey, these people start tracking kind of what the behavior is of these users, we can now understand a little bit of a pattern. And that pattern recognition is really, really important for the TNL industry because now they understand, okay, on a three-month basis, for example, I know that this person is going to continuously buy. So they bought once you know, in January. They then bought again in November. Likely they'll buy again in February, another three, four months later. So what we can do is we can now create incentives for those users to purchase on a regular basis. And in many cases, they'll try it out because they're already doing it anyway. And now a retailer will give them a bit of a push or a little bit of an incentive to say, hey, we can give you maybe a few percentage points off if we know you're going to buy on a regular basis. And so this benefits the retailer because the retailer gets a regular recurring kind of revenue model. The end user automatically gets certain items shipped to their homes without them having to kind of go through that, as well as the TNL industry. They also get a nice regular flow where they can now balance their truckloads a lot easier if they know there's a regular flow coming in. I do want to shift gears a little bit. And earlier you talked about even the transition from paper and pencil processes to technological processes, but even where those transitions have taken place, I know that system downtime was noted in the study or in the report as a key issue right now for TNL companies. To what extent has technological downtime, perhaps because of those fractured systems we talked about earlier, to what extent has that affected schedules and efficiency there? Yeah, that's a great question. So in a normal week of work, each employee is losing hours of work through dealing with technical or system difficulties or what we call the downtime. And that's delaying shipments by one to two days. Overall, I think in the TNL sector, we found that 98% of respondents indicated that each employee loses time within a normal work week through dealing with technical difficulties. And more specifically, it was 10% lose less than one hour, 33% lose one to two hours, 39% responded losing three to five hours, and 14% lose six to eight hours, and 3% lose more than eight hours. So this is a huge delay when you look at a normal work week and, and how much time is being spent on downtime. There are, of course, solutions to downtime. There is the need for remote support. We talked about paper and pen processes. 
a lot of the slowdowns are around simple things, to be quite honest. Sometimes it's just a, an inspection report. Sometimes it's there's a delay and I need to give that information back. And today it's being done through a paper report, which means it's not really being done in real time. An inspection, if there's something wrong or there's an indication of some type of maintenance that's needed, well, where does that paper and pen process go? It's not immediate. It actually goes into a binder. The binder then gets grouped for the week or for the day and it gets accumulated. That information then goes into some type of central office where they document all the information down and then somebody gets alerted about this need for maybe a maintenance update or some type of update that needs to be made on a delivery truck. And so that's a huge delay just overall and those accumulate over time. Now enter in a, a quick mobile app that replaces the form and now you've got this immediate update that happens in real time. It alerts anybody if certain answers to the inspection report have not been updated correctly. So that real-time update means I can do a real-time response for that truck and I can actually prevent certain things from happening or even getting further degraded. So this idea of using mobile devices and getting real-time updates and also leveraging it for providing real-time updates, it's become super important and it would prevent these types of losses and downtime. Just some incredible downtime numbers. They're really mind-blowing when you think about it. But I did want to turn our attention now to the upcoming holiday season. I know you at Sodi have been putting together a lot of data surrounding holiday shopping, getting ready as far as what retailers, what logistics companies can expect regarding the holiday season. What are some of the more notable things you've found in looking ahead to Q4 this year? Yeah, this year, the nation's largest kind of retail container ports, they're expecting to hit another record year. Consumer demand is actually going to be the highest. The National Retail Federation predicted that consumers with children in kindergarten through 12th grade will spend $37.1 billion this year, which is the most since the industry group even began conducting its survey way back in 2003. We know that chains like Target and Staples, they're predicting parents will still purchase clothing, backpacks, lunch boxes, notebooks, and other items that they didn't purchase last year. So this back-to-school boom is really expected to continue all the way into the holidays, even as retailers kind of face these supply chain problems due to these you know, temporary factory closures in Asia, the shipping delays, the port congestion, all those types of obstacles that they have to overcome. I would say that U.S. trucking companies, we know that they're still scrambling. They're trying to hire more drivers. There's a roaring consumer demand. There's tight shipping capacity. There's a huge resurgence in the freight market. Some of the largest truckload carriers in North America, what they're doing now is they're starting to increase their pay. They're trying to hire thousands of drivers. They're holding recruiting events to do a surge. And I think, I know we've talked a little bit about it, but the returns process is honestly just as important as retail sales is now especially because retailers experienced you know, a 41% increase in online returns last holiday season. So we do think that this back-to-school surge, when we think about it, these companies need to have technology and apps really top of mind in anticipation of yet another surge in online and in-store shopping this holiday season. The increase in sales also means, obviously, an increase in returns. And what we're seeing is that they need to make that returns process easier. Things like maybe developing an app, that would be simple. But what it does is it really reflects your brand and your brand's value. And if we can make it simple for consumers to kind of do these returns, it will just make the entire process 
simple and it will actually increase the sales. It's been shown to increase sales. The report actually tells us that if returns is easier, I will buy more. It's a very clear kind of correlation there. Providing consumers with choices on how to make returns, whether that be in-store or utilizing multiple carriers and drop-off locations, these are all great methods to manage the expectations and help prepare as much as possible. I wanted to end here because you mentioned, of course, the increase in sales, how that might affect reverse logistics. But what you just described there seems like a perfect storm as far as overwhelming some of that back-end technology that both retailers and logistics firms have. What are some of the pressures that we can expect to be placed on these back-end technologies, even more so than what we might have already seen over the last 18 months? I think you're going to see a dramatic surge in the use of mobile technology to help these companies scale. It really comes down to the seconds and automating any types of operations that are currently manual in nature right now. And this is where these companies are really thinking about, how do I save even the time of scanning? How do I save, because even that scanning time could take an extra few seconds. How can I automate something where maybe I'm still using an Excel spreadsheet or a Word document and I want to be able to convert that into some type of mobile application? So we're working very closely with retailers on just understanding their operations throughout from even within a store to just, you know, hey, the cleanliness of the store. Can I take pictures? Can I do these types of things? They want to be able to do this all through their mobile apps. They want to have real-time updates. So I mean, in closing, I'd say that preparing with solutions kind of like the what we offer with the Sodi One platform, it's allowing these retailers to manage their delivery strains by building apps faster. It's going to be changing, and there's no kind of one answer that will work today and might not work tomorrow. The reality is these consumers are constantly changing their demands to say what's important for them. So that's why it's important to have a tool that can change and adapt as well. Retailers and supply chains kind of who are not using technology to prepare for the upcoming holiday shopping strains, they face the risk of really hurting their bottom lines and losing their most loyal and valuable assets, which is their customers. Well, as always, great insight, Shosh. Thank you for taking the time to come back to the podcast and discuss not only this report, but the upcoming holiday season with us. Thanks, Trent. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. It's always great to be joined by Shosh on the show. He and Soti do such a great job with their research and trying to kind of provide context behind some of the other issues that we're seeing overall in the retail landscape. Now, before we get to our Looking Ahead segment, I did want to talk just briefly about something we discussed during last week's Looking Ahead segment because it's kind of funny. We discussed Meyer's opening of a new store in downtown Detroit, another small square footage store. We talked about other grocers kind of going back and forth vacillating between higher square footage formats and lower square footage formats. One of those retailers that's been doing that recently has been Hy-Vee, and we've seen it bounce back and forth for Hy-Vee, kind of curtailing some of their large format stores because of concern. And then recently, they've been jumping back into it, and they actually announced that they're opening a store 
this month in Iowa, Grimes, Iowa specifically. It's 93,000 square feet. It's got grocery It's got all kinds of things. Now, apparel offerings, which we had seen in other high square footage Hy-Vee stores, that there had been this conversation out there that maybe Hy-Vee wanted to do away with those. That's not the case with this new large square footage store partnering with DSW to have a store within a store for footwear. Joe Fresh Apparel providing a department there. Also, a number of different other things. Uh, Johnson Fitness and Wellness Exercise Equipment Showroom, as a matter of fact. So, lots of different things here for Hy-Vee. Lots of store within a store. You've got a massive number of restaurants. Not just one restaurant in the store, but almost a food court, if you will, all within this 93,000 square foot location. So I think that's worthy of keeping an eye towards as Hy-Vee kind of goes back and forth. Also announced in the last couple of weeks is the fact that HEB is piloting a jewelry store within a store, which is, of course, something that we had seen the likes of Kroger do a lot in the past 50 years. You look at Fred Meyer Jewelers and kind of the sub-brand that they've been able to introduce to non-Fred Meyer stores over the last several years. And Kroger's mentioned that some of those non-traditional revenue sources like jewelry going up for them recently. So it is interesting because you have Meyer kind of scaling back with these smaller square footage stores. You have HEB and Hy-Vee going back into it, although HEB never really stepped away from their large square footage formats. But I think that's certainly something to keep an eye on, although not our looking ahead story here. Instead, we're looking ahead to Yesway, which has announced intent of a $100 million IPO of its stock. Now, Yesway is a convenience store chain that is based out of Fort Worth. Just a couple of years ago, they actually bought out Allsup's, which is, if you're in the American Southwest, that is oftentimes in smaller towns the only place you can get food in the small towns, but it is kind of a legendary convenience stores chain known well throughout Texas and New Mexico as well. Now, Yesway as a whole has about 403 stores. 304 of those were acquired in the Allsup's acquisition, but Yesway itself has stores throughout the Midwest and on up into Wyoming and South Dakota, as far north as that. You see their convenience stores, think about them as kind of an upscale convenience store, if you will. A lot of private label products, a lot of higher-end grocery items. I've been to these stores a few different times, and I think it really is unique as far as the convenience store offering is concerned. Now, I've been to Allsup's a lot, and let me tell you, Allsup's, if you're looking at things is oftentimes kind of the opposite of that outside of the ability to buy some, you know, taquitos and that type of thing in those stores, tamales and so forth. They're not really known for providing a lot of natural and organic food offerings like the the mainline Yesway stores are. The reason I'm looking ahead to this is the fact that we're going to get an eye into their sales for the very first time. And I'm excited about that. They reported $1.6 billion in sales for the 12 months ending June 30th, 2021. And currently, Casey's is one of the only convenience store chains that is publicly traded. So the fact that Yesway is going public, I think that's exciting not only for us, but exciting for the convenience store sector to see exactly the sales breakdown between their traditional all-sub stores 
and what's going on with their new specific Yesway stores and to see if that upscale convenience play is really something that is capable of taking hold throughout more than just the Midwest area. And it's funny, I was, I was talking to a listener this week about this particular concept, not Yesway in particular, but about those concepts regarding convenience stores maybe having higher quality options for you, better for you options, or organic or natural selections, or even local selections. This is something that Yesway is really trying to do to an extent that we haven't seen a lot of convenience stores do in the past. So I'm really anxious to kind of see how exactly this plays out on the Yesway front. They have an overall goal of 500 stores within a relatively short amount of time. As is so often the case, you kind of wonder in the convenience store space if this is going to happen through acquisition or if this is going to happen through organic growth specific to their brand. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. Once again, a big thanks to Shosh Anand for joining us on today's show. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Michael Osborne. He's the president at Wonderkind. Wonderkind has a couple of marketing reports coming out, one specific to Black Friday and Cyber Monday, another specific to generalized marketing to consumers from retail companies. He's going to talk about trends unearthed in both of those studies, and I think there's some interesting data currently under embargo, but we're excited to reveal it on next week's show. Big thanks to Leighton Behind the Scenes as well. I'm Trent saying so long until next show. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.